0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big
1: picture. Afternoons with Rob Brickenridge. Weekdays, 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR.
0: I haven't ruled anything out. I'll be doing what's best for the party, uh, what I think is best for the party on the other lens of making sure that we stay united uh, and that we defeat the NDP in a year.
2: I haven't made up my mind as of yet. I'm still deliberating. I obviously have to speak to my family, to my constituency, as well as Albertans across the province. All
3: right, welcome back. Well, that's a couple of cabinet ministers. uh, Their response to the question of whether they might run to replace Jason Kenney as UCP leader and, of course, by extension, then as premier. Uh, The latter was uh, Transportation Minister Rajan Sani. Before that, it was... House Leader Jason Nixon, Environment Leader, uh, Environment Minister House Leader Jason Nixon. So some are considering it. Look, we know that there's two for sure who were declared. Other cabinet ministers basically gave the answer of maybe, as MLAs have returned to work at the Alberta legislature in a very odd kind of atmosphere. I mean, it's status quo for now. Jason Kenney is still the leader, is still the premier. All of the cabinet ministers are still the cabinet ministers. And as much as the premiers talked about, you know, the importance of continuity, there is some major upheaval ahead in terms of a leadership race and uh, a new leader to be selected and whatever direction that leader chooses to go in terms of policy. Those are the cabinet table, all of that. So these are going to be trying times for the party for sure, a party that's already clearly divided. So what can be done to bring the party together? And is there a role here that, that Jason Kenney has to play in his time remaining as leader, however long that is? Jason Kenney may be uh, not in the mood to do that. Maybe he feels hard done by. Maybe he feels that, look, you know, he did his best. Uh, Members of his own party did him in. Why should he be doing anybody any favors at this point? But what is the objective here? Jason Kenney says he's stepping down for the good of the party. And look, if this party is going to stay together, they're going to have to figure out a way for all of these factions to coexist. There's an interesting op-ed today looking at... You know, the, the importance for this party of, of staying united and, and steps that the premier could take, things that Jason Kenny could do in his time remaining as leader and as premier uh, to try to heal some of the divisions in the party. Well, joining us to talk more about it is uh, the author of that piece. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Michael Solberg. He's a partner at New West Public Affairs, uh, much more at NewWestPublicAffairs.ca. Michael, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Rob. happy to be on. Well, you know, your sense of of where this is at, I mean, like I say, it seems like the calm before the storm. Like, there is going to be all of this upheaval at some point, even though, you know, all seems quiet right now. What's your sense of kind of where we're at here, first of all?
0: Yeah, no no kidding. I think we're definitely in the eye of the storm, and there's certainly more upheaval uh, to come in the days uh, and weeks ahead of us. Uh, and this relative calm, I think, needs to be spent on some reflection and some introspection uh, by Conservative Party organizers, uh, Conservative Party candidates, uh, prospective ones rather, uh, and certainly just Conservative Party members themselves, but also uh, Jason Kenney uh, about how this party can move itself forward on an effort to keep this coalition together, which is clearly divided. If you just look at the re- uh, leadership review that just concluded in the results Uh, that we ultimately saw nearly split down the middle. What can can these folks do between now and this leadership race really kicking off to ensure that the coalition has a chance to stay together and ultimately defeat Rachel Notley next year, which is, of course, uh, the obvious goal. So you pointed to my op-ed today where I pointed to you know, kind of a number of things that I think the party in general needs to do uh, to ensure that this can take place. But what can the premier do? I think people are pretty quick to... Uh, ignore Premier Kenny's role in the party over the summer uh, and are instead looking into the fall when a permanent leader uh, is elected. But there are certainly steps that I think uh, Premier Kenny can do right away that I think would do a lot to, I guess, throw some water on the fires that may have continued and continued to bleed beyond uh, the leadership results that our leadership review that just concluded. And uh, I, I don't know if it's controversial or not. You'll have to be the judge for yourself. But I think that begins with. Uh, consulting with caucus uh, and presenting a path to redemption and a path to return into caucus by current independent MLA's Drew Barnes and Todd Lowen, who, who were tossed by their caucus colleagues last May to, to quite a bit of controversy and to, uh, to a lot of news. And I think that's where we can start the conversation.
3: Well, yeah, and that would be, uh, I'm sure, a bitter pill to swallow for for Premier Jason Kenney, and obviously those two are, are out of caucus specifically because of you know what he feels they did to to undermine his leadership. Um, sure. But at the same time, if if this is about more than just him, then maybe that needs to be on the table. Then
0: for for sure, I, I think you actually raise an extraordinarily good point. And to be clear, it's not just Drew and Todd uh, that have been voices of malcontent in the party and who have openly aired their grievances about the Premier and his leadership and where the party's direction is headed. There's a number of sitting MLAs uh, who haven't been shy about their views on this. Uh, and and the onus is certainly not just on the Premier uh, to do this. I think he has obvious role to play in reaching out. But, you know, <laughs> a number of these MLAs, Drew and Todd included, uh, prior to their ouster and some who still remain in caucus you know, have gone out and openly undermined the leader of the party. They've, you know, been in caucus meetings and immediately ran to the media uh, to air their grievances and, and, and kind of uh, uh, leak information about the discussion in these caucus meetings, and that's certainly just as damaging to the party than I think any, uh, any leadership style or position that the Premier has taken in the past. So I guess my thesis here is it's a two-way street uh, uh, between leader and, and the leader's caucus, and ensuring that there's some respect, that there's trust, uh, and that there's a, they're unified in at least their goal uh, to, to defeat Rachel Motley in the next election. But in, in that process, build a platform and share a value sentiment that they can all agree upon and present to Albertans as a forward-looking vision for the party. That's something they've been unable to do for at least 18 months. Uh, and if they're going to be able to do it uh, at all ahead of a uh, general election in 2023... That work needs to start now. I don't think it can even wait until a new leader is elected on a permanent basis. I think it starts under what's left of the Premier Kenny's tenure uh, as leader of the party and as Premier.
3: Well, and look, we've already heard, um, you know, at least one of the declared leadership candidates suggest that these, these MLAs should be welcomed back into caucus. Um, you know, Brian Jean is also a, a member of caucus, and, and he's been pretty outspoken himself about uh, the need for Jason Kenny to go. So, you know, this is going to be something that the new leader is also going to have to address do you think it's reasonable that, that Jason Kenny, who, you know, for all intents and purposes, let's be honest, is kind of a, a lame duck leader and a lame duck premier, is it his decision to make, do you think?
0: Well, you know, it's a fair point. And I think, you know, I'll, I'll, I, I support Jason uh, uh, as as the as leader and the premier. I respect him greatly. and um, But I can understand how how the decisions he's made has ultimately led to him, you know, of course, losing his job in a few months from now. Um, And I do think he has the cover now that he no longer really has a mandate uh, to do so, to to not welcome uh, Drew or Todd back in the caucus or to not go and reach across the aisle and start healing these divisions. However, I think because he, at least according to the so-called dissident MLAs, was the primary source of malcontent within that caucus, it would send an enormous message about party unity. Uh, Should Premier be able to resolve these issues both on personality, policy, style, leadership, and otherwise, while he remains leader, uh, for a new permanent leader to then inherit. Um, I think it would do a lot for the party moving forward to to be united before the next leader is even elected. And frankly, that's what an interim leader is, is usually in charge of doing right. uh, when a leader is ousted. We've seen it done at the federal level as well. That was the charge of Candace Bergen, uh, which she's doing right now for the federal conservatives to heal the divisions that ultimately saw uh, Mr. O'Toole ousted uh, before the end of last year, and I think that's the same job that Premier Kenny can do. Particularly since I think he owns some of these issues along with the MLAs, that are no longer in caucus. Some that do that do still remain.
3: And as you say, that's got to be a two-way street. Then, so there's got to be a willingness, perhaps, on the premier's part to 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 let this go. His allies to let this go, but then those who have been outspoken, they got to be willing uh, to to again be team players.
0: For sure. For sure. And I think the UCP has a viable and popular brand. It's one that certainly still has a lot of upside. Uh, and I think it's because it's, it's a big tent party uh, that is supposed to house uh, a number of diverse views that cross, across, uh, that cross you know, rural and urban divides and other value sentiments felt around the province. So I think that have remained popular because of this kind of allowed uh, dissent. But there are certain lines that cannot be crossed. Uh, And I think open insubordination against your leader is certainly one of them, particularly if you have any interest in in re-electing your party, but certainly within caucus as well. I mean, there has to be opportunity to air your grievances and and take concerns to your party leader, but done so on a closed-door basis uh, and where these issues can be handled internally. And the Conservatives in Alberta have notoriously now uh, not been able to do that. And make no mistake, Rachel Notley, I guarantee you, deals with issues from her MLAs. Uh, but they do a lot better job at not making it public, not running to the media uh, after something is said or done within behind a closed door caucus meeting, and at least is able to appear united, and I think they are. And the UCP certainly needs to counter her on that by being united themselves. Uh, uh, there are a number of battleground ridings in the province where that is going to be absolutely necessary in general election 2023.
3: Well, interesting. We'll see if the party heeds the advice. Much more is mentioned, Newwestpublicaffairs.ca. Michael, appreciate it. Thanks for making some time for us here today.
0: I appreciate it, Rob. Have a great day.
3: Cheers. All the best. Michael Solberg, partner at New West Public Affairs. You know, some advice for the UCP. Look, if you want to present a united front to Albertans in 2023, you actually have to present a united front and, uh, you know, come together as a party. It doesn't mean agreeing on every issue. But, you know, all of this bickering and infighting, it's, it's just going to lead to, if not a split in the party, turning off voters. Like, do we really want all of this drama when it comes to the governing party? So I, I don't know. Is it just a case of, OK, Jason Kenney was the problem. Jason Kenney's leaving. Everybody can can be one big happy family all again. Or does it run deeper than that? And to what extent is there an onus on Jason Kenney uh, to try to heal these divisions? So it's an interesting idea that Michael raises, that it would be a powerful gesture for Jason Kenney to reach out to Drew Barnes and Todd Lowen, two MLAs who were kicked out of caucus, primarily for their criticism of Jason Kenney, to reach out to them and say, we'd like you back, please return. Should he do that? Is the onus on him? Was he justified in dealing with them the way that he did? I want to turn our attention to an important new report on a subject that Canadian governments tend not to pay as much attention to as they should. National security. It was 2004, the last time Canada reviewed its national security policies. A new report out today urging the government uh, to update that policy that we're not prepared, it says the new and changing security threats we face. The report says, even before the first Russian tanks rolled across the border into Ukraine, it was clear that our traditional approach to national security was no longer sustainable. And a lot's changed since 2004, obviously. The report notes the world has been destabilized by the worst pandemic in a century and the sharpest economic slowdown since the Great Depression. So joining us to talk about this report, the call for a new national security, uh, security strategy for the 2020s, is one of the authors of the report. Thomas Juno is an associate professor of public and international affairs at the University of Ottawa at the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the U of O. Joins us on the line here this afternoon. Professor Juno. thanks so much for joining us here today. Welcome to the program.
4: Thanks for having me.
3: Uh, as mentioned, 2004 was the last time Canada updated its national security policy. Why, first of all, is this something that the governments are reluctant to, to focus on?
4: Well, that's a good question. And, and what we've seen over the years and frankly over the decades is that successive governments have largely neglected national security issues. Uh, this is not something that is limited to the current government that goes to the previous one and for that matter, the ones uh, before we live in north america we're a pretty safe country we have oceans on three sides the us on the other side uh, so we've basically been able to neglect national security without paying much of a cost and when i say without paying much of a cost i mean a security cost uh, but also for government a political cost because obviously that's often what what gets them moving what we're trying to say in that report is that um While it is absolutely not the end of the world next week, we're trying not to be alarmist Mm -hmm. at the same time, a number of things are happening, some of which you mentioned, the war in Ukraine, the rise of China, the rise of right-wing extremism, uh, climate change, pandemics. Uh, that should act as a bit of a wake-up call for this government and future governments to take these issues a bit more seriously.
3: Right. And obviously, when it comes to individual situations, I mean, it's not as though governments are, are ignoring these on an individual basis. But the importance of having an overall national security strategy, how does that help shape government response, or at least even governments being proactive in some cases?
4: It it helps in multiple ways. First of all, it does uh, act as a coherent plan to make sure that CSIS, the RCMP, the Border Services Agency, and all the different moving parts are better aligned. But beyond the, the internal aspect, the internal planning aspect for government machinery... A public strategy uh, serves the purpose of communicating with Canadians uh, to raise awareness, to explain to Canadians what the situation is, what the threats are, what the government is doing about it. It helps the federal government to communicate with provincial and municipal governments who also have a role to play in encountering some of these threats. It communicates to the private sector. Uh, if you think about some of the threats that Canada faces today, like economic espionage, the threat of intellectual property, um, cyber uh, security, and so on, that involves the private sector. So, in that sense, the strategy also serves to communicate with, with all of these other people who do have a stake in this.
3: Mm-hmm. I mean, in 2004, obviously, the focus was on international terrorism, you know, just three years from 9-11, and a lot of focus on groups like Al-Qaeda, which, and, and certainly when, when it comes to the national security situation today, I mean, that, that, that threat still exists, but how, how different is the world today than, than it was in 2004? We look at these other threats that now exist.
4: So you're right to say that the, the threat of al-Qaeda and also the Islamic State, which didn't exist back in 2004, uh, still exists. Uh, It's still there, and we should not take our eye off of of that specific one. But one of the defining characteristics of the world we live in now at the international level, but also at the domestic one, is how diffuse the the threats are, how diversified they are. Uh, There's traditional geopolitical threats, the rise of China, an aggressive Russia, as we're seeing in, in Ukraine right now. But there's also a whole range of other threats, economic espionage, foreign interference, uh, foreign interference in our elections, which we saw a lot in the U.S., which also happens here, perhaps on a smaller scale than in the U.S., but it also happens here. We see a lot of actions by hostile states, think Russia and China, but also think states that are in other ways our friends or partners like saudi arabia like india like turkey who do interfere a fair bit for example to pressure their diaspora communities to curb their uh, activism in some cases Uh, iran does it a fair bit too um so that you know, if you look at all of that, there's a spectrum of threats that is pretty diverse, pretty diffuse. And, and one of the points that we really emphasize is that a lot of these threats are not only of the responsibility of the federal government. The government needs to work much better than it does now with provincial governments, with municipal governments, with the private sector, with civil society, with universities, uh, to educate them, to give them the tools to, to counter a lot of these threats. <laughs>
3: What about the pandemic itself or or the threat of future pandemics? I mean, it's it's not necessarily something where we would mobilize the intelligence community, for example, but clearly this has ramifications for national security. Do we need to look at these issues through a, a different lens here?
4: So you you framed the question in exactly the right way. The pandemic itself is not a national security issue, and it should not become one. It is not the job of the intelligence community to monitor future pandemics. That's the job of public health. We can have a separate debate as to whether the Public Health Agency of Canada did a good job. That's an important debate, but that's a parallel one. One thing that we've learned, though, during the pandemic is that even if a pandemic is a public health issue, It's an issue with national security ramifications. So to give you one example, one thing that we saw during the pandemic that was very concerning was hostile states, again, think Russia and China in particular, but others too, actively, very actively trying to steal intellectual property from the biopharmaceutical sector in Canada, whether in universities or in private companies. That's a big problem. And CSIS, uh, DRCMP, CSC, which is our, our signals intelligence agency, really worked hard during the pandemic to try to help the private sector, the research sector to counter that. That's a problem that's going to continue. But if you broaden the discussion beyond this pandemic, A, there might be other pandemics in the future, but B, think about climate change. Climate change per se is not a national security issue. But one of the key economic sectors in the coming years and decades will be all of those technologies to to better adapt ourselves to climate change, right? That will be an extremely critical uh, sector of economic activity in Canada and beyond. Already, we're seeing attempts to uh, steal some of that intellectual property, and we can only anticipate that that will intensify. So again, you see this basic idea of a non-national security issue, pandemics, climate change, having major national security ramifications.
3: You also mentioned domestic extremism and domestic in a Canadian sense or domestic maybe in a, a North American sense. I mean, you know, it was almost 30 years ago that we had the Oklahoma City bombing. We, we've known of this threat for some time, but it's it, it's certainly different in nature today. How, how has this threat changed and why does this need to be on the government's radar?
0: So
4: the, the threat of right-wing extremism, which takes multiple forms, white supremacists and, and others, uh, has been getting more intense in the country. We saw it in the protests earlier this year in Ottawa, in Coutts, uh, in Windsor and elsewhere. Uh, it is a movement. It is a, a range of movements, in some cases, lone individuals. It is intensifying. And, and one aspect that we want to emphasize in the report is that, in many ways, it is a homegrown phenomenon here in Canada but it is also a homegrown phenomenon that has growing transnational links to similar or like-minded movements and individuals in the U.S., uh, but also in Europe, in Russia, and, and elsewhere. And those links are important. There is exchanges of information, there's exchanges of money, uh, exchanges of lessons learned, uh, and there's also a bit of a diffusion effect. When one group has success in one country, you see others trying to imitate that, Freedom Convoys being one, one possible example. So, one thing that we're saying from the events of early 2022 in, in our report is that, by themselves, these events were not a major national security problem. Um, but should it be seen as a wake-up call for future pos- possible protests? Yes. Uh, and and in that sense, the federal government has to learn some key lessons from what happened and what didn't work well in those in managing those protests, for example, in terms of coordination, information sharing with provincial and municipal levels of government, that was a serious deficiency.
3: Well, this report officially being released today, and I suppose we'll, we'll see if this uh, pushes the government in the direction of a security review. But we'll leave it there for now. Professor Juno, thank you so much for making some time for us. Really appreciate this. Thank you. All the best. That's uh, Thomas Juno, co-author of uh, this report being released today, as mentioned, Associate Professor of Public and International Affairs at the University of Ottawa. Uh, The prime minister in Vancouver today was asked about this report and in the call for a new national security strategy, Uh, here was his response.
5: Four former national security advisors to the prime minister, quote, uh, concluding that the traditional approach to national security no longer sustainable and that Canada is not ready to face this new world of security threats. Now, uh, do you agree with uh, these sentiments and what ought to be done?
2: There is no question that the world is changing rapidly and getting more dangerous uh, in new ways than ever before. When we look at the prevalence of misinformation, of disinformation, the way social media has been weaponized both by uh, foreign actors uh, and by people within Canada pushing extremist views, trying to foment anger and discord, Uh, whether it's uh, extremist ideology and right-wing terrorism on the rise in Canada, or uh, whether it's uh, examples like the illegal... Uh, protests we saw in in uh, in the winter. Um, there are a whole new set of challenges that uh, we need to be responding to, and that's why we're working closely with our national security agencies, working closely with uh, organizations like the the uh, Canadian Security Establishment around communications, uh, to uh, make sure uh, that we are able to respond to these new issues, new new realities. We need to do it, however, in a way that continues to defend freedom of speech, freedom of expression, freedom to, protest for, uh, pro- uh, to, to uh, legally protest, while at the same time we're taking on more tools uh, to keep Canadians safe. Because increasingly we're seeing that things that start online end up having impacts on the real world.
3: Welcome back. Well, perhaps it's not surprising uh, in an era and an ecosystem, uh, social media, where conspiracy theories thrive, proliferate, uh, that monkeypox and these monkeypox outbreaks would lend itself uh, to conspiracy theories. And uh, so our next guest has uh, delved into that story. As he notes uh, on his website, he spent the past decade covering disinformation, conspiracy theories, extremism, national security, and the weird places where all of those things intersect. And maybe this is an example of that. He's focusing some of this, uh, that research on a new Substack newsletter, uh, which is called Bug-Eyed and Shameless. I do appreciate the title. Uh, veteran uh, freelance journalist and author Justin Ling joins us uh, on the line here this afternoon. Justin, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program.
0: Good afternoon. Thanks for having me.
3: Yeah, I mean, this stuff really almost does deserve its own kind of focus here because there, there's so much of it, and you've written a lot about it over the years. Uh, and so good timing, I guess, with this uh, whole weird monkeypox story.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm frankly a bit frustrated sometimes by... Uh, how our industry handles some of these questions, right? I was even chatting with some, some, some tech types over the last couple of weeks, um, including some folks who got really involved in the fact-checking business. And, and frankly, it, felt like, it feels like over well, the last couple of years, we've spent a lot of time and money uh, doing these fact-checks. So I'm sure there's a ton out there this week. Fact-check, you know, monkeypox didn't come from a lab. Fact-check, you know, the U.S. government didn't create fact, monkeypox, whatever. Mm-hmm. Right? And I'm not sure it's super helpful. You know, I think what actually kind of gives people a good grasp on what's going on is explaining to them where these conspiracy theories come from, right? It's not as though it's two sides you know, making valid arguments and then the, you know, the media in the middle trying to you know, figure out where the truth lies. I mean, you know, there is a coordinated effort by people who either have a very loose grasp on reality or people who are trying to make a quick buck, who are marketing this nonsense to the public and to folks who are already sort of ready to believe this stuff for a variety of reasons. I think the more we can show people where this stuff comes from and how we got here, uh, the more people are going to be inclined to say, oh, okay, yeah, that's total nonsense. You're right.
3: Mm -hmm. It's an interesting point because, look, ignoring it's not really an issue, right? I mean, that would be an easy way to deal with this. Say it's crazy, let's just ignore it. But maybe that's part of how we've got ourselves into this mess.
1: Yeah, I mean, listen, I've been doing this for for a number of years now and really focusing on it, maybe it's for the past three years. And I remember, you know, covering QAnon 4 or 5 years ago as many of my colleagues said you know why are you focusing on them you know what's the point in covering qAnon it's just a bunch of yahoo's on the internet and now this is a political movement quasi religious movement that is sending representatives to congress that is deciding the outcomes of major electoral races that is commanding a follower base that stretches nearly every major country in the world and millions of people right These conspiracy theories, whether it's the idea that COVID-19 is a biological weapon or whether it's that Vladimir Putin is bombing Ukraine in order to destroy U.S. biological weapons facilities, these bits of nonsense have real-world consequences and can metastasize into something that actually does have a real threat for our democracy, for our, um, you know, our efforts to contain biological threats or, you know, novel viruses out there. You know, this has an impact on how we deal with public health crises. Um, it toxifies our political culture. There's a whole bunch of really bad outcomes that come as a result of these conspiracy theories and this disinformation and we should be really alive to those. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, I think a lot of people's solution to that is let's start banning websites and shutting down, you know, conversations and trying to get the government into regulating the Internet. I, I don't think that's the solution. I think that makes everything much, much worse. I think what we really need to do as journalists, the very least, and as researchers and politicians and other folks, is to get really into the muck of it and show people where the truth lies, why people are, are peddling these narratives, and then try to give them the tools that they can use to, to get to the truth themselves in a kind of a real and honest way, as opposed to just Googling around on some junk websites and kind of believing whatever's on there.
3: Right, which does involve some fact-checking at some level. And, sure. you know, let's take, like, the anti-vaccine stuff, right? And, and I think there was even a British MP, wasn't it, who tried to you know, link the AstraZeneca vaccine to monkeypox because of a chimpanzee adenovirus It was used in the making of the AstraZeneca vaccine, of course, and adenovirus and a pox virus are completely different viruses. So it doesn't make sense. So maybe that needs to be explained before exploring in more detail why anti-vaxxers would be pouncing on this, this monkey pox outbreak
1: yeah the thing is fact checking is a process, not a not an outcome not a not a platform right journalists fact check all the time i sure. mean if you 're lucky enough to work at an outlet as I still sometimes do that can afford you know full time fact checkers it 's a real amazing novelty to have people whose entire job is to read word for word and to kind of kick the tires on every single thing you 're saying it 's a real unfortunately an increasingly rare phenomenon in journalism, but fact-checking is something we do all of the time, and helping people understand how to fact-check properly is critically important. The real issue is when you have um, you know, websites that just try and kind of cut out that process and just jump right to the conclusion, which is to make you know, sweeping fact checks on, on, on big things. Um, but no, I mean, you're totally right. I mean, it, it, the, the adenovirus, the you know, uh, AstraZeneca vaccine example is perfect. I mean. The reality is when you start giving people the tools to understand these issues themselves, I think they do much better, right? Um, There was another instance where um, one guy who's also on Substack, one of my competitors, I suppose, um, drew a direct line between an accident that occurred a couple months ago where a truck full of research monkeys overturned in Pennsylvania, I believe. And he basically suggested that, whoa, maybe that's where monkeypox came from. Maybe that was a secret research truck. And people pick up on this, right? Because it feels like that's just too unreal to be a coincidence. Mm -hmm. You know, a truck full of monkeys overturns. A month later, we have a monkeypox outbreak. That can't be a coincidence. Well, when you actually give people the data and the information, of course, it's a coincidence. Monkeys are incredibly common research animals. Uh, Monkeypox does not come from that type of monkey. The monkeys were sourced from a totally different country and a totally different part of Africa than where monkeypox is endemic. And by the way, monkeypox is a virus that we've had for uh, decades and that has popped up multiple times in in North America and Europe. We just don't really remember it because it's been some 20 years since the last time. Monkeypox has no signs of being manipulated or... Or engineered in any way. You know, when when you start giving people this information, they get to go, "Oh, yeah, it is just a coincidence." Mm-hmm. You know, that person who I was reading wasn't giving me all this information. That is the sort of fact check process that's really important, as opposed to just sort of you know sw- you know swatting people over the head with a newspaper and saying fact check false.
3: Right. And look, I mean, conspiracy theories can thrive even around issues that are well understood, that have been well studied, where where we do have all of the answers. But in a situation where we don't understand everything, and, and this monkeypox situation is an example of that, right? We've got these outbreaks in different countries. Why is this happening? You know, what's what's the source of all of this? In in a situation where there are unanswered questions, it makes it that much easier, I suppose, for this stuff to thrive.
1: Oh, absolutely, and also places where there's just sort of an inherent or a built-in or maybe a very well e- well earned. Distrust. I mean, you go back to the 80s and the amount of misinformation and conspiracy theories that existed in uh, the gay community around the HIV and then later the black community in a very similar way was enormous. <laughs> there was a really dogged belief that the U.S. government or the CIA had developed Uh, HIV in a lab to target gay people or black folks. In fact, the Soviet embassy at the time, this is is very interesting, these documents have been declassified in the last couple of years, but the Soviet embassy actually got in the game and started spreading the notion that HIV was a biological weapon. Of course, this is all nonsense. We know this is all nonsense. Now, we have largely forgotten that this was even a common belief. But major figures, spike uh, Spike Lee actually was a prominent defender of the idea that HIV was a biological weapon. Um, you know, you go to the early 2000s, a similar thing pops up. I mean, um, people have believed that Zika was a biological weapon, that Lyme disease was a biological weapon. And a lot of that stems from uh, the 2003 invasion of Iraq and the belief that if America is willing to lie about chemical and biological weapons in Iraq... Then why wouldn't they lie about them here? You know, ditto about the '80s. You know, the gay community believed that if that there's no way the U.S. government could be, could be so criminally negligent. In addressing this this new virus, there must be something more afoot. This sort of distrust, this cynicism is really understandable, and it's really logical, and I 100% empathize with it, but that doesn't mean that the conclusion that stems from it is correct. You're seeing the same thing now with COVID-19. A lot of people who are really rightfully skeptical and distrustful of the U.S. government, particularly the national security regime and apparatus, believe that the U.S. government developed... COVID-19, or at the very least, U.S. dollars developed COVID-19 in a lab in Wuhan, either by accident or on purpose. And those people now believe the U.S. is responsible for other dangerous biological research around the world uh, that is nefarious in nature. Now, the, the cynicism might be understandable, but there's just no evidence, no good evidence, no compelling, overwhelming evidence for the things they're claiming. But they sort of ask you to suspend disbelief you know, because you you so distrust Washington or the WHO or whoever, and and to just sort of go along with it, and that's where a lot of these conspiracy theories really stem from. And it's why people sort of shut out good information. They stop listening to public health officials. They stop listening to independent researchers and peer reviewed papers, and they just sort of believe.
3: They do. So once we started hearing about these uh, outbreaks of monkeypox in different countries, seemingly unrelated. mean clearly then this was something you were watching for what what were you bracing for What, what did you go looking for then early on
1: yeah i mean listen every mention of anything biological in this day and age is going to set off people who are just primed at the pump to believe or to suggest that the u.s government is behind it all or the who or china or whoever and sure enough it didn't take long i mean in a matter of hours, if not you know, a day or two, the usual suspects came out of the woodwork. You know, A guy who is a QAnon follower who um, started the idea that the U.S. is funding these dangerous bioweapons labs around the world. He started advancing this idea that um, you know, this truck full of monkeys was, in fact, the origin of the monkeypox outbreak. Um, you started seeing uh, folks who have pushed the idea that COVID-19 is man-made and that, in fact, it's made with snake venom. Those sort of folks coming started coming out suggesting that uh, monkeypox was was something more more nefarious and, and orchestrated. And and what starts happening is that even if each individual actor is completely unreliable, out of their depth, has no experience, uh, is 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 a huckster, is just doing this to make money, is completely you know a lunatic. Well, just the volume of it becomes such that people start going. Well, there's a lot of questions out there, right? Because you can't possibly check into every single person. Not everyone's like me. Not everyone has a time. Not everyone gets paid to do this. Not everyone can sit around and check into every single individual person who's putting out these ideas. And if you start hearing them more and more, let's say your Facebook is filled with people who want to share this sort of stuff, then you just start believing it. Or at the very least, you start thinking there's something there, there. You You start thinking maybe there's a real discussion, a real debate to be had and when that happens it's really easy to fall prey to these these false narratives and to think that the uh you know that there is something to these ideas and i think that's going to start happening i think that has already started happening in in some circles and i think um if this uh, outbreak gets worse you'll see it happening even more because i think people are going to fall into the idea that it's impossible mm-hmm. that there's been too outbreaks of a, of a novel virus in a matter of years and they're going to start believing the idea that there is a, an evil plot afoot to use these viruses to control the population or to restrict our civil liberties and that someone might be behind it all because that is the notion that's been driven home by these bad actors for a number of years now and they're not going to stop pushing it because it's driving clicks, it's driving advertising dollars, it's driving their own popularity and their speaking gigs and their notoriety and in some cases it's helping them get elected. So I think you're going to see more and more of this, uh, especially if this thing gets worse.
3: Yeah, and that's the interesting side of it. I think we can, you know, and, and it's been well explained why you know people might be susceptible to, to conspiracy theories, what the lure is. But the question of what's driving it in the first place, where's the supply coming from, not just understanding the demand, but, but who's supplying it? And, you know, there are agendas. Part of it is about selling a, a website, selling a documentary. Some of it is just relevance or notoriety. Like there's a lot of different agendas at play here, aren't there?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, like I said, you know, some of these folks have Substacks. They get subscription dollars. Some of them have done crowdfunders, you know, the movie about COVID-19 being snake venom uh, and the and the vaccines being a dangerous global plot that raised millions of dollars in crowdfunding. Um, other places have um, you've gotten sponsorship deals, take donations directly. Uh, some places are just happy to, to uh, have their name out there. Some places, even worse yet, sell supplements, uh, claiming that, uh, you know, pharmaceutical companies are out to kill you or are in bed with these evil governments, and therefore they can't be trusted. So, you know, ignore... The COVID-19 vaccine, ignore um, you know, Paxil, you know, Paxil COVID, the, the, the treatments for COVID-19 and other things, and buy their supplements, buy vitamin D, buy their you know, homeopathic cures. And that drives them a ton of money, but it's actually putting people in really dangerous health positions. And people have died because of this. People have ignored uh, you know, health treatments for COVID-19 and cancer and other things because they're being told by these people everyone is lying to you, only you can you can only trust me, please buy my supplements. so you know this is literally killing people, and I think we really do have to tackle this in a more thoughtful way, otherwise this could keep getting worse because there is there's an insatiable appetite out there for sort of an alternative explanation and an unlimited willingness by some people to take advantage of that either maliciously or because they're naive themselves but either way you know this is a Big business, and it's not slowing down by any measure.
3: I'll leave it there. Uh, your latest on this is mentioned shameless dot com and, and uh, much more. Justin dot Always appreciate it, Justin. Thanks for making time for us here today. Thanks for having me. All the best, uh, freelance journalist, author Justin Ling.
5: I am uh, representing Alberta, but I'm originally from Newfoundland. Quite frankly. And uh, that's probably blowing your minds right now. You're probably like, hold on a second. There's no black people in Newfoundland. (laughs) And you're
3: right, because I'm here. That's uh, Trent McClellan. Yes, I think we can say Calgary Zone. Originally uh, from Newfoundland, veteran stand-up comedian. Of course, uh, for the past uh, few years, been a cast member on this hour, has 22 minutes. Uh, He's going to be on stage this weekend at the Laugh Shop uh, at the Blackfoot Inn. Uh, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Much more at LaughShopCalgary.com. Joining us online here this afternoon is the uh, aforementioned Trent McClellan. Trent, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much. Appreciate you having me. Well, obviously, as an adopted son of Calgary, when you're caught up in the Battle of Alberta like everybody else is. (laughs) I don't know. This would be maybe a nice distraction this weekend for people, because, holy crap, this is getting too tense.
5: It is. I was at uh game one at the dome and I was just there with my my girlfriend and my good friend and we were just screaming our heads off, like just gone mad. And then the guy in the row ahead of me turns around and he's like, Hey, you're the dude from twenty two minutes and I was like, oh, <laughs> what a- I was like, What have I been saying for the yeah, last exactly. thirty minutes? So starts going <laughs> going backwards in my eyes. What have I been shouting? So, uh yeah, I'm pretty caught up in it all and uh Maybe folks need a reason to laugh and can come out this weekend and we can uh, turn spirits
3: around. Well, I mean, hey, it's, it's good that we can. Obviously, we've had uh, such disruption uh, over the last two years where, you know, that wasn't always an option for folks. And, you know, on top of it, too, I mean, you know, these feel like heavy times, right? Just so much going on, so much weighing on the minds of people. Like we need like we legitimately need a distraction, need a, an opportunity to laugh, don't we?
5: Yeah, I totally agree. I think uh, comedians missed being in front of a live audience, but I've also realized that the the audience has missed being in a room with other people and laughing and, and kind of uh, looking at the lighter side of, of what's been going on. And uh, I was in the airport in Halifax flying here, and a lady came up to me and just said, you know, I just want to say thank you to everyone, all you guys at 22 Minutes, just for, for doing what you do, because we really leaned on that show, you know, over the last two years to to give us some laughter and to kind of put some silly into things. So uh, it it meant a lot because you kind of are in the bubble of the show and you just get on with it week after week and you don't really know sometimes the impact you're having. So I thought it was pretty thoughtful to her, but I think it's pretty indicative of where a lot of people are at right now. They're just looking to to come out and and reconnect with people and and laugh and have a good time.
3: Yeah. And when do you guys shoot that? What's the schedule for 22 minutes for you?
5: We normally go from the beginnings of of September until usually end of March or mid-April. So uh, upcoming now, we have season 30 is going to be starting in September, believe it or not. 30, yeah, wow. 30 seasons of, of uh, not many shows get that these days, that's for sure. And uh, it started off as like a little four to six week show they were going to put on in the summer just to kind of fill some weeks, you know, and here we are 30 seasons later. So it's uh, it's pretty crazy, and I feel so grateful to be part of it.
3: Yeah, I mean it's been around so long. I think people forget kind of the, the name of the show that this is is supposed to be a take on. But yeah, the longevity is incredible, and and you know obviously there's been gaston over the years, but you know there, there's a central core to it in terms of the approach, but also keeping it fresh. I mean, what what do you attribute the longevity, the success of the show to?
5: I think it's the ability of the show to adapt over time. You know, we, because our show is so news related. You know, as the news continues to be churned out, we have to kind of keep an eye on that and try and be as up to date as we can. You know, sometimes we're we're rewriting things on the floor just seconds before we're taping. You know, to oh, this story's changed a little bit, so we either have to drop that sketch altogether because it's no longer relevant. The story's changed so much, or we have to tweak that joke a little bit at the desk because something has happened. So I think it's the ability to just be in the moment and of the times. I think is why people keep going back to it. And ironically, a lot of people go to twenty-two minutes, believe it or not, for news. You know, like just the setup of a joke is like, oh, I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, I didn't true. know that happened. And I mean, our, our silliness goes on the back end of that, but the first part is like, oh, okay, I didn't realize that happened uh, at the House of Commons <laughs> this week, so so uh, we kind of take that responsibility too a little
3: bit. Yeah, it's interesting. It all falls under the umbrella of comedy, but you know, stand-up comedy and sketch comedy are, are different things. Even improv is, is is a different tool, a different skill set. Um, so, are you, are you a stand-up guy who who sort of you know learned the art of this the sketch, or how did, how did you approach it?
5: Yeah, mine was more that way. I started in stand-up and then started getting into a little bit of acting and doing commercials and other projects. And then I got um, kind of a a trial as a writer at 22 Minutes. And then that kind of led to my joining the cast over time. Um, And they're very different worlds, right? Stand-up is so solitary. It's just you, the microphone, and the audience. And there's no real buffer in between. Whereas when you're making sketch, it's an ensemble generally. And so many different hands touch it from the props department to hair and makeup and wardrobe and editing. And so there's so many more hands that go on it. So it's far more of a collective. It's great as well, but it's it's a different process. Where stand up is like, hey, I thought of this just here in the moment or on my drive to the actual club. I'm gonna say that and we'll see what happens. So um, the great thing about that too is the feedback's immediate. So the audience tells you right away, like, yeah, we like that, or oh, not so much. You know, <laughs> whereas TV, you have to wait a week to find out if anyone it, it resonates with anybody. So they're different, but they they uh, feed both sides of me. I think
3: it's interesting the parallel too, because uh, Sean Majumder, of course, uh, he's from Newfoundland. He made a name for himself on on Twenty Two Minutes. I think his time on the show kind of ended just as yours was was getting started. Is is that about right?
5: Yeah so we had one full season together and and uh yeah so in the next year Sean wasn't there so was crazy for me because i i remember watching sean when i was younger watching yeah. sean do those shows and my first ever stand-up comedy show was watching a Sean jungler show in st john's newfoundland so oh, yeah. for me then to be part of the cast and sit standing next to him and being in sketches together was kind of surreal for the first week i'm like how did all this kind of happen you know like it just it just seemed like i was on this wild ride so uh yeah sean and i are still good friends and then kind of keep in touch and uh yeah, he's still doing really
3: well. Yeah, and I remember he was in town a few years ago and, and we were chatting and it, it seems like, you know, now everybody knows Newfoundland because this is when, you know, come from away was just, you know, a runaway sensation, especially with Americans who had no idea what Newfoundland was or where it was. Now everybody knows it. Isn't it interesting that, you're, you know, this little corner of the world that, that's so unique, maybe a lot of Canadians don't get the opportunity to take it in, but, um, you know, everyone's kind of learned a little bit more about how special a place it is.
5: Yeah, I got some great advice from my friend and castmate, Mark Critch, with regards to come from away because it was, of course, a Broadway um, smash hit. And Mark said, if you get the opportunity, go to New York, go to Broadway and see it done there because it, it won't be there forever. So, and I went and did that. And it was, it was literally like a spiritual experience because you're sitting there watching this incredible performance about this incredible story about my home province. And I'm sitting next to people who are from, I think, New Jersey. And they were like, are you from this place? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I am. And they were like, oh, my God. It was like, (laughs) they didn't know who I was in terms of Canadian television. But they were just like, I was suddenly a celebrity because I was just from Newfoundland. And this is what this thing was about. So it was a really cool moment. And I think the great thing about that show as well is I think it, it captures Newfoundlanders in a way that we don't take ourselves too seriously. I think that's why so many great comedic voices come out of newfoundland it's a storytelling culture but also we don't take ourselves too seriously and we don't take other people too seriously right like there's there's levity always injected into things and into life and uh i think that's why uh as i said so many great comedians come out of there
3: well what's cool about calgary is you know you don't have to look too far to find some fellow newfoundlanders or fellow maritimers right everyone's from from somewhere but at the same time i imagine life in calgary is a lot different
5: yeah, it is. It's, a, it's one of those things where I find every city and every province has its own speed. Like the East Coast, things are just slower. People take their time. They're not in a rush. I was back in Calgary two weeks. I'd already been given the finger a couple times while I was driving. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like people are going somewhere. Yep. Get out of the way. I got to yeah. be somewhere. On the East Coast, people go for a drive. They just get in their car and they drive around just so they can <laughs> just. Just drive there, so just get out of the house. Yeah, people in Calgary are like, I have to be somewhere. I don't have time for you. If they're gonna go for a drive in Alberta, they drive out of the city. Like, let's go to the mountains. But if they're in the East Coast people are like, Oh, we'll just we'll drive around Halifax. Okay, can I just we'll, just we'll see the gas station, it'll be nice. You know, we'll just go around. So it's every city has its speed, every region has its speed, and I find uh, Alberta in particular is, is things move a lot faster than they do back east.
3: Yeah, no kidding. Well, uh, coming up this weekend, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, as mentioned, The Laugh Shop at uh, the Blackfoot Laugh Shop, uh, Much more at com, And, of course, uh, the 30th season, uh, 22 minutes, uh, coming up this September. I think I covered all the bases, Trent. Uh, appreciate you making some time for us here today. It's been fun. Thanks
5: so much for having me. I'm looking forward to seeing folks out at the show.
3: There you go. Trent McClellan, uh, Calgary-based comedian, cast member. This hour has 22 minutes this weekend at the Laugh Shop, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge. And you can email me, Rob, at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time.